0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I am Director of ECFR and this week we're going to talk about the panorama of challenges that open societies are facing today. And to help me make sense of this, I'm really thrilled to be joined by a very special guest, Leonard Bernardo, who is the Executive Vice President for the Open Society Foundations. He began his work with the Open Society Foundations, at the Soros Foundation in Moscow, before going on to oversee the Russia program's full range of grant-making activities and then expanding them gradually to take in the Baltics, Hungary, Poland, the whole of Eurasia. And he was also the founding director of the Open Society Fellowship Program, which expanded in 2016 to include a whole series of, of different initiatives and bringing together people thinking about the big challenges to open societies today. As well as having spent decades uh, supporting open society in the field, he, I think, is, is uh, somebody who's thought a lot about these topics and brings enormous intellectual depth to this. So thank you very much for joining me, Lenny.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Mark. Always a pleasure to be with you.
0: So what we're going to try and do today is to think about how these quite fundamental changes that we're seeing to the world play into the agenda of open society. It's not really a secret to to say that many people think that we've been in an open society recession for, for quite a period of time now. But with the war in Ukraine dominating the agenda in Europe, you 're seeing uh you know a lot of trends being catalyzed in different ways, and people are talking about a
1: turning point at the moment. Do you think we're at a turning point for open society i don 't see it so much as as a, as a turning point. I think that the last few thousand days mark have been pretty grim for open society thinking and open society practice in many quarters of the globe on every continent. I don't see it yet as an inflection point or a turning point. I see the recession as perhaps even getting uh, grimmer and more recessive in, in the coming period. Not, not to be a Cassandra about this, but I, I think that that tide will turn eventually when open societies or liberal democracies or whatever kind of frame of reference, regime type we want to use, is able to show that it is able to, uh, in the contemporary parlance, deliver in a way that, frankly, uh, authoritarian states, authoritarian regimes, uh, have been able to do so, convincingly or otherwise. That perception about delivering democracy um, as a challenge to authoritarianism is, is, is not yet a, uh, a winning proposition. And I think it's probably going to get more grim before that tide turns. So um,
0: we've heard a lot about autocratization, the rise of autocrats and strongmen. Um, And I'd like to go into more depth in that because you've obviously worked uh, and supported programs in lots of countries going through those sorts of problems. But maybe we could start with a bigger picture question, which is, What's your taxonomy for thinking about the challenges to open societies at the moment, if you had to to think about the, the different ways that it's being challenged?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, Mark, in terms of so-called autocratization. It's happening, and I myself am a sort of recovering social scientist, so I look at these things comparatively, and since it's happening in every part of the globe, whether we look at Putin, or Xi, or Erdogan, or Sisi, or Netanyahu, or Trump, et etc. et cetera, we find in all quarters of the world this type of strongman, this type of often semi-populist or full-blown populist figure, um, a set of practices and principles uh, that undermine the fabric of an open society, whether it's freedom of expression or basic human rights or support to marginalized groups or associational freedoms or what have you, this is happening everywhere. And so it, of course, begs the question, why? It's not a specific region. It's not a, a specific moment in time, perhaps. It's happened over the course of many years. Why is this? I think that for open society, to get to your question directly, the most fundamental aspects that need to be challenged in this moment where autocracy is in the ascendance, are those sort of necessary and and, and fundamental uh, attributes that make any open society uh, function. And so questions of expression, questions of association, question of basic fundamental freedoms need to be fought for and need to be even in the grimmest of moments, um, challenged where they're not in uh, good standing. And these are, these are huge, huge problems when you're facing places like China, like Russia, like Egypt, like Turkey, like the Philippines, in which rights are simply not respected in a way that was seen to be, uh, certainly some years ago, commonsensical. And so, For an institution like ours, it is a commitment to these basic features of the open society, rather than larger questions of global governance, larger questions of sort of repairing a badly battered uh, international system um, that have to take pride of place. And I think that it's frankly a country by country context. There's no silver bullet that's going to shed light across region and across uh, authoritarian states on, on on this and to what extent do you
0: think that the change in fortunes is simply uh, to do with the relative decline of the west and the fact that the west had taken ownership of a lot of the the attributes of open society was spreading it in a kind of missionary way around the world and and western people confused hard power with soft power (laughs) and they thought that people were following them because they were so attractive rather than because they were forcing them to whether through economic
1: coercion through imperialism through
0: other kinds of means
1: yeah i mean first there is a lot of that and i don't want to diminish that or discount it the kind of self-awareness by a lot of western actors by a lot of so-called, as you put it, sort of missionaries uh, some years ago, deeply, deeply alienated large segments of the population in those states that are now run by uh, particular autocrats or you know, quasi, or as Joe Biden would put it, semi-fascists or populists of different stripes. There was very little self-awareness on the part of the West. A person who was as agile, a policy thinker, as Bill Clinton was in his time in office between 93 and 2001, was unbelievably unself-aware when it came to how those policies being prescribed for newly independent states transitioning out of so- so-called state socialism or communism were being perceived and how they were being enacted. So I don't wanna discount that piece that you mentioned because that absence of self-awareness has played a great role in alienating a lot of populations in in different parts of the globe. But it's not only that. Um, I do think that globalization, such as it was and is in terms of its failures, in terms of the recognition now that there's going to be Uh, profound haves and have-nots. It's not going to be a rising tide that takes care of all. And the question of inequality that had not been outside of the left, frankly, before some years ago, attended to as a problematic feature of the international system, a problematic feature within national states, sovereign governments, that that's played a profound role in diminishing Uh, the attraction of many to what they saw as these kind of globalization or neoliberal type experiments. And I think any liberalism
0: was too neoliberal. And that's why you that's that's a a kind of fundamental problem with with people who supported the open society. The fact that
1: it was kind of blind to these questions of distribution. No question. No question at all. And if you look at the human rights movement, frankly, the human rights movement only recently, took into account questions around social and economic rights. Civil and political rights was the mainstay of human rights practitioners, human rights theorists. Notions of social or cultural or economic justice was always seen once again as some kind of, you know, sort of Marxist uh, idea of a bygone era that would sort of wither away somehow and political and civil rights would be the dominant framework in how we think about uh, protecting fundamental freedoms. And I think it was a massive, massive uh, failure on the part of the West. I remember David Reif saying to me, David Reif was a writer, social critic at the time of the Arab uprisings in 2011, 2012, the fact that organizations like mine, and others went straight to the accountability line, went straight to the question of forms of lustration even, criminal justice, bringing people to court, as opposed to what actually launched those Arab uprisings in Tunisia, which was a, you know, a fruit vendor. It was questions of disparity, inequity, economic injustice, that looking only at the political side, looking only at the accountability side, was a huge, huge failure in the imagination of the West. And we see what unfolded soon enough, not to blame the West for what happened in the re autocratization of the Middle East, but questions of inequality were just not front and center.
0: So do you think there's now a thicker idea of what open society is within OSF or within kind of other organizations that are working on rights issues? I do,
1: I do, definitely within OSF. Um, and I think other institutions as well. We, I look at a quite a, a partner organization to OSF, the Ford Foundation, and you may know Mark that they have identified inequality as a kind of hegemonic theme for all of their work. It's a bit of a procrustean bed at times, how everything fits into it. But inequality is a central theme for them, and a recognition that open societies are not going to advance or in fact, even be instantiated in any fashion without a full-on recognition for inequality in the world. It's a necessary uh, condition. And w- what about that first question that we started talking about, which was the,
0: the identification of open societies with, with Western power? To what extent are you trying to decolonize um, the open society
1: foundations? It's it's a fair point. Um, a lot of my colleagues frankly would sign on to some form of decolonization, however it is um, defined. But there's an issue at hand. Let's take the war in Ukraine and let's look at the critique both from the left and the right about the role of international human rights institutions in that context. I think that what we're seeing in many ways is a kind of odd bedfellow aspect uh, on, on, the, on the human rights question, where both the left sees a kind of anti-imperial project uh, longstanding, that finally the chickens are coming home to roost and the big organizations like Human Rights Watch, despite being a global institution, is still caricatured as being a, a kind of DC arm of the, you know the State Department. And at the same time, of course, many on the right downplay human rights issues, looking instead at questions of development as taking pride of place. Uh, We see how well that did in Chile, which, of course, the day before yesterday, voted down substantially, 62 to 38, uh, what would have been maybe the most radical constitution uh, ever to come to light in, in, in the world. So there still are clearly forces that look at questions of human rights, questions of equality, questions of equity, um, as uh, projects of, as it were, sort of Western actors.
0: The other big topic which people are obsessed with is is technology and how that's changing the public sphere and the whole idea of of a demos and of our identities and how we come together and how politics takes place. I mean, how, how... bigger challenge is that to the open society agenda?
1: Well, in an age of disinformation, it's a huge challenge. I am a bit of an outlier with some of my colleagues who want to establish programming that will ultimately vanquish this beast of disinformation. And if you see around the world today, every country has a kind of truth telling NGO that's been set up, funded from organizations like us and others, that are doing honorable, well-intentioned, and indeed necessary work in an age of disinformation. But my belief, Mark, is that disinformation is with us forever. And it's not a question of vanquishing it, but it's a question of living with disinformation, tamping it down so that its excesses or its excrescences are somehow Uh, not debilitating in any profound way uh, public debate. Now, that might sound utopian, but I don't think we're going to rid the world of institutions that are uh, incentivized to produce propaganda or mis- or disinformation. And we need to figure out, there are ways to regulate things, as Europe is uh, doing, I think, uh, most effectively. And there are ways to, I hope, regulate platforms in the U.S. as well. But I think it's more about having a proper conversation about how we live with disinformation rather than assuming that we're going to once and for all triumph um, uh, beyond it.
0: What does that mean to live with it? I it mean, what, educating citizens so that they
1: can treat things with skepticism, which they're reading or I mean, what does it mean? It's it, it's it sounds very uh, humdrum and simple minded, but I do think media literacy frankly, and moving back to what was once a kind of hallmark, frankly, of organizations like ours needs to return more thoughtfully, um, more tailored to uh, a different period in human history, no doubt. But yes, media literacy is definitely a part of that. I think that we also need to recognize that the power of the platforms has been so outsized that some form of regulation that has, uh, that will ensure to a greater or lesser extent that the bile that is pumped through these platforms is itself tamed. It's a very complicated and long uh, haul project. But I think rather than uh, a dubious assumption to my mind that it's somehow going to be overcome or transcended, ways in which we can live with it uh, in the case that you raise, making people think more critically and reflectively about what they 're hearing, education is not a bad step to take that obviously disinformation is an important part of of what
0: technology means for us, but it 's only a, a small bit of the ways that technology is changing every aspect of our lives. What do you think the other challenges to open society
1: are that stem from digital revolution? Look, you know once upon a time. Uh, there were a lot of so-called digital optimists, many of whom were in my and I believe your uh, circles that thought that sort of digital tools were going to be the ultimate democratizing feature of a participatory democratic experiment. That that kind of pure electoral uh, democracy that was always found to be wanting would now, because of new digital media, uh, allow for the kind of, you know, citizen-led participatory democracy that democratic theorists could only dream of, it didn't happen. Maybe it happened in some corners of Estonia, <laughs> but it didn't happen in much of the rest of the world. And friends of ours like Yevgeny Marozov has thought, Yevgeny Marozov has thought quite uh, seriously and circumspectly about this question and about the way that uh, Digital tools have been used by both authoritarian and non-authoritarian states for all sorts of notorious and nefarious means. So I think I don't want to give up the hope and the possibility around the use of digital tools for activism, for social engagement, for participation, for uh, the public sphere generally. But there is so much friction right now that needs to be kind of contended and confronted with before we get to, if you will, uh, a slightly purer space. So one of the, I think,
0: byproducts of the digital revolution has been the rise of identity politics because it's so easy for people to become part of an imagined majority, to use Ivan Krastev's phrase, um, uh, in the digital sphere, everyone can find people like them. Um, And that has... I think changed a lot of our assumptions about how representation works, um, but also about the whole idea of universal rights and a lot of the the conceptual architecture of open society seems to be challenged by the rise of identity politics or is being taken over by it. I mean, increasingly, every identity group is, is redefining open society in those sorts of terms. How do you see these trends intersecting with one another?
1: Dismally. Dismally, uh, to be to be totally frank, I mean, Cass Sunstein did say once upon a time, and then said it again and again and again, the way in which the kind of digital revolution is turning us into quite polarized creatures, you know, and the whole sort of identity politics regime that we uh, are facing headfirst today, both uh, for salutary reasons and less so. I could only imagine, Mark, is a uh, is fuel for a lot of the polarization that we see in, 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 in many countries um, around the world today. I don't know what the tonic to it is, let alone the panacea, but we are living in a period when forms of solidarity and social cohesion across identity, across whether it's class or race or ethnicity or what have you, are no longer as understandable as they once had been for a variety of reasons that we unfortunately don't have the time to get into. But I think the project that we have at the Open Society Foundations, although I'm not sure George Soros will put it in these terms, is how to reimagine solidarity in an age of polarization. Um, How do you you achieve that? Um, And it's not just a question of how do we depolarize? Because if you focus only on that, I think you're missing the larger positive political program of how do you re-solidarize uh, with, with 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 your neighbors.
0: So you talk a lot and think a lot about this whole about you know the idea of critical thinking and and having spaces where you can have kind of real big arguments. But increasingly, a lot of the organizations which were champions for open society, are becoming increasingly squeamish about certain types of, of speech and certain types of um, of expression. And there are these, bit, you know, a lot of people try and caricature them as being woke or politically correct, etc. How do you see those sorts of debates on the left intersecting with the open society agenda?
1: You know... Um, a lot of those debates have become, uh, frankly, silly and overheated in a way that we can't see the forest from the trees. I've never been an absolutist when it comes to forms of expression. Um, while I am a card-carrying member of the American Civil Liberties Union, I still feel that there are limits that we need to respect if we're going to have a healthy, vital society. Having said that, I do think that the squeamishness that you speak of, the limits that have been established in the public square, such as it is, towards what one is able to effectively impart um, is, is, is problematic. I don't think we're going to return to some kind of, you know, the sort of salad days of liberalism uh, where everything was open and we were all listening and reflecting and critiquing and in the way that perhaps an open society absolutist might like to see. I think we need to, you know, you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. And we have to figure out how to love the one we're with today, respecting the fact that identity politics or identitarianism is playing a both necessary, if still, conflictual role in how we think about solidarity and social cohesion. But without, as some of my comrades, regrettably, are wont to do, simply passing it off as a foolish fad or something that will ultimately be swept away by the forces of history, we have to recognize where those concerns and anxieties are coming from, but at the same time, deal with them in a thoughtful and I feel, a uh, liberal-mannered way.
0: So many people think that the technological changes we've experienced so far, which we've spoken about, are not even the kind of tip of the iceberg, but that freedom is really going to be completely curtailed by the rise of artificial intelligence, machine learning, biotech, and all sorts of other kinds of developments in the genetic sphere. I mean, how are you thinking about those sorts of challenges looking forwards to the open society?
1: You know, I'm, I'm running an effort right now that I've called the Ideas Workshop that is really in part about looking over the horizon at some of these things like machine learning and biotech as you name. But these are extraordinary challenges to the open society. There are also opportunities for the open society And I think that we need to do a lot more understanding before we could talk about whether or not they're going to inflict perpetual damage on uh, open society practice or not. And so part of what I'm trying to do is to focus less on impact, as is the kind of customary assignment at foundations like ours, and focus more on understanding. And I think things like machine learning And the way in which China's social credit system is benefiting from artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, both for the surveillance of society, but also, I believe, the potential betterment of society. I think we need to spend a lot more time, Mark, over these next years thinking these through, because as you say, these are colossal issues challenging the open society. But I do also think they offer potential for it.
0: So we're entering a a period where we don't just have a multipolar world in terms of uh, resources and armies and and economies, but also increasingly on the back of that, a more multipolar world of ideas. Are there kind of interesting ideas about open societies which are emerging outside of the West, which you've come across?
1: Of course there are. Of course there are. But I would say this, Mark, without giving a laundry list, I would say that one of the fundamental problems that we have had in thinking about, just to take the example of China, is that we rely on a very small subset of people, often who speak the imperial lingua franca of English, to tell us or share with us or debate with us what is happening in China. There are, as you know well, because you wrote a book about it, a multiplicity of extraordinary intellectuals, policy intellectuals, academic intellectuals, activist-minded intellectuals in the PRC that are not necessarily English-speaking that we need to find ways to uh, spotlight, to be engaged with, to be in dialogue with. Their uh, interpretation of the open society will inevitably contrast with ours, But i don't think that this so-called open society can flourish in any way shape or form without proper understanding of how others interpret questions of openness questions of fundamental freedom questions of association and i think that there are scores and scores of brilliant-minded intellectuals in the global south and in the global north that we have no contact or connection with because they are not frequent participants on social media they don't sort of you know cite Slavoj Žižak at the drop of a hat they don't wind up on some sort of international CNN type program and that's very much what I'm trying to do at the Open Society Foundations today so that that conversation around the Open Society can be a lot richer than it is now
0: well, we're coming up to the end of our time here, but maybe that's a natural bridge to, to the last thing which we always do on the podcast, which is our, our bookshelf segment. What books do you think our listeners should should explore if they want to to go deeper into these questions around open society at the moment?
1: You know, you, you, you raised the point in passing, Mark, about decolonization, and there's a book that's coming out uh, next week, I believe, by the Cornell scholar Olofemi Taiwo, Nigerian, who runs the um, Africa or they call it Africana Studies Department uh, at Cornell called against decolonization. And it's no by no means a reactionary critique. He's a person of the left. Uh, but he believes that the whole decolonization debate has taken away the agency from Africans in terms of thinking about and intellectualizing their own past, present, and future. And I think it's going to uh, stir up a lot of proper controversy, and I would strongly recommend people look at that. I should say for the record, there's another, believe it or not, Olafemi Taiwo who teaches at Georgetown in the philosophy faculty. So if you look up Olufemi Taiwo, T-A-I-W-O, this is the Cornell person. But outside of the, the the written word, I would very much suggest your listeners take some time with the podcast, Know Your Enemy. It is one of the most interesting, outside of the one that we are on right now, podcast that I have come across, Mark, in which two people on the left come to grips with conservatives and conservative thinking in the most thoughtful and consonant and decent-minded way, but really focused at the terrain of ideas. And so um, uh, strongly recommend people listening to that. And for those on social media, there are two, we didn't speak about Ukraine at all, but that's of course a major topic, both for the Open Society, for ECFR, and for the world, let alone Ukraine itself. There are two thinkers Sam Green, who's associated with um, King's College in London, and Almed Rochevansky, who are some of the most critical people, critical in the the best sense, on uh, social media right now, discussing questions around the broader Eurasian space. And I just uh, commend your listeners uh, to move outside the the kind of daily claptrap that perhaps most of us are enveloped in and take a look at both Sam Green and Almut Rochevansky. Just before we we round off the podcast,
0: Lenny, g- given that you've spent so much time in Ukraine, thinking about Ukraine, working with Ukrainians, maybe you can talk about Ukraine in the context that we've been discussing. Um, George Soros has often presented this as the the kind of frontier of freedom, and you know sees certainly for Europe this struggle to defend. Ukrainian sovereignty from Putin's aggression as not just a a security challenge, but one which is fundamentally about ideas of open society. How do you see the Ukraine war fitting into this bigger
1: picture that we've been talking about? I think, frankly, Mark, it's a centerpiece of it. You know, George Soros, as he often is, was way ahead of the curve in seeing Ukraine um, as this bastion of open society thinking and practice based where it is, based on its history, and the crime of aggression that is, of course, the fundamental crime in the international system that's been inflicted on on Ukraine over these last six months, and the absolute catastrophe that's unfolded. I am, I was, I should say, very surprised that this war began, as were many Russians and Ukrainians that I know. Very few people, no matter uh, having a realpolitik lens or a a more idealist view of the international system or being as close to the action as people in Kiev or Moscow are, believed that this war would happen. It seems so outside the ken and outside the level of rationality that Putin himself would have prosecuted this. And I think one lesson to be learned from this horrible, horrible, savage, war, is not to impute rationality to non-rational actors like Vladimir Vladimirovich, And I think that the less we could use rational actor theory in our assumptions and prescriptions about why, for example, wars may or may not happen, the better we will be. Now, what does that leave us with? It leaves us with questions of culture, other kinds of interests. Weber, of course, spoke endlessly that there was not just a rational self-interest. And I think it's taught us a great lesson that questions of history and culture and identity and fear and paranoia uh, and security matter as much as rational self-interest. But this is all background to your concrete question, which is what does it mean for the open society? I think it means everything. I think it means everything because Ukraine itself, while being a weak democracy, certainly while being a place that George Soros once said gave corruption a bad name, was still a functioning democracy in which freedom of speech, expression, association, fundamental freedoms were upheld, you know, and the marketplace of ideas was apparent for now many years in Ukraine. And so... We need to make sure we do everything we can within the international community to have Ukraine as an open society retained. I'm not someone who wants to see this war prosecuted um, by hook or by crook. I think there needs to be a time, and I hope it's soon when we find a way for it to end. But Ukraine as an open society must be an always ongoing proposition. Well, that's a great place to end our discussion um
0: thank you very much Lenny for for going over all of these enormous topics it's been quite dizzying the uh, amount of ground that we've covered from <laughs> from such a, a huge altitude but uh, it's been wonderful talking to you we'll put up links to all the publications and podcasts that Lenny mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu if you've enjoyed listening to us, please do subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use to download this episode from. And while you're there, please do give us a positive review and a five-star rating. We won't complain and it will help other people find the podcast. But for now, from Leonard Bernardo and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and the editor of this episode is Marlene Reid.